Exodus chapter 19 is where we are for a few minutes this morning. Exodus chapter 19. If somebody came up to you this morning and said, here's a deal. I've admired you. I've observed you. I've been watching you. And my wife and I would love to be able to send you and your family on a vacation and we're going to pay for it. I hasten to add that's likely not going to happen to anybody this morning. But if it did, and you could go anywhere you wanted to go, where would you go? Now, there are some people in the house, and the first thing that they would think is, I want to go to Disney World. You need to be saved (laughs) if that's your first response, where you would go anywhere in the world. But I know some people, that'd be the first place that they would go, and they'd have a great time. If you ask me to go, I might go with you. Then some people say, we know I just, you can't get any better than Paradise Beach. I'd go somewhere other than the one we live near, but I'd go to a beautiful place beach, maybe one surrounded by tropical scenery. And then others would say, you know what, I'm a history nut. If I could go anywhere, I would go to one or more really rich historical cities where I could observe things where in the annals of the past, monumental events have occurred, and I'd go to museums and shops and walk up and down streets of great significance. I did some of that on my sabbatical last year. By the way, let me just say, I'm really thankful I took that sabbatical last year, not this year. Amen. I almost put it off a year, and I'm thankful that I didn't. But then there would be some people, maybe even the majority, where if you could go anywhere you wanted to go, there would sure be mountains there. I mean, I love the mountains. I went to the mountains as well as to the historical cities when I was on sabbatic leave last year. There's just nothing more majestic or awe-inspiring about the vistas that you find at mountains, either from the top looking down or from the, da- from the bottom looking up. They inspire us. They wow us. They motivate us. There's something magisterial about mountain grandeur, and many of you would go there if you could. As you read the pages of the Word of God, you find that many of the most important biblical events occur at or around mountains. Jesus went to the mountains to pray. Jesus was transfigured on a mountain. Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount on a mountain. Jesus agonized on a mountain. Jesus will one day come again and touch down on a mountain. But I suppose of all of the mountain scenes that you find in the Bible, one that has the most significance occurs in our text this morning from the book of Exodus chapter 19. Would you join me there for just a couple of minutes today because it's here that we find the nation of Israel catching up to Moses at the base of what the Bible calls the mountain of God. And here's what we read about it. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and encamped in the wilderness There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. 
the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Can we visit for a few minutes this morning concerning God's Word to God's people? Father, we thank you for the power and authority of your Word, both the Word that you gave to Moses, the Word you would give to his people, and by your written Word, the Word that you will communicate to us today. More than a messenger speaking from a pulpit, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak in ways that are unmistakable and even transformative, for only the Spirit of God can change human hearts and human lives. Do it, Lord. We beg and pray in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. These are important verses. This passage actually is a transitional passage. If you're familiar with the book of Exodus, you know kind of what happens next. When you get to chapter 20, it's called God's Big Ten, the Ten Commandments. Contained in only two passages in the Bible, here in the book of Exodus chapter 20, and then also later in Moses' life, he'll recount the event in his final book, the book of Deuteronomy. And so the magnificent event of the giving of God's law to his people is preceded and precursed by this passage of Scripture, the beginning of Exodus chapter 19. Some have referred to verses 4 through 6 right in the middle of this passage of Scripture. As among the most important words in the entire Old Testament, I've known some scholars that would isolate this passage and declare it the most significant statement of God in all of the Old Covenant of God, which is a pretty dramatic thing to say. As we begin reading Exodus chapter 19, we find the children of Israel breaking camp at Rephidim. They'd been there for a while, and God had done some amazing things among them there. He had visited with them there, and last week, if you were here, we saw Israel in a time of thirst where God took bitter water, and through the obedience of Moses and the tossing of a log into the pool, He made bitter water sweet to satisfy the thirst of His people. The same thing happens not long after that where the people run out of water again and it's there at Rephidim that God tells Moses, go to the rock and strike it. And from the rock, God produced water to satisfy the cravings of his people. It was at Rephidim that God led the ragtag nation of vagabond slaves to an unbelievable, unexpected military victory over the Amalekites with no weapons other than the few rocks and sticks that they could conjure together in their bare hands. They defeated a mounted force in ways that could only be ascribed to the miracle working power of God. 
And it's from there, from Rephidim, that Israel breaks camp at the word of God and at the leadership of Moses to go and join Moses where he already was. Moses had left Rephidim ahead of the nation and gone to catch up with his father-in-law Jethro, his wife, Zipporah, and his two children, who had been with him at the beginning of the Exodus, but at some time, the specific time, we're not told when, but at some time Moses sent them away. He sent his family on, and Jethro met them near where Jethro lived in the land of Horeb. And Moses broke camp early and left to spend some time with his family. I preached about that encounter, about Jethro having a one. And if you were to ask Moses who his one was, it would have been his father-in-law Jethro. And he shares the miracle-working power of God with his father-in-law. And now, sometime later, we see Israel breaking camp and going to where Moses now was at the base of a mountain. It was time to move on. And this becomes one of the high points of the book of Exodus when the people finally arrive at the mountain of God. We're not exactly sure what mountain we're talking about here. Later on in chapter 19, it is referred to as Mount Sinai. It's referred to simply as Horeb in Exodus chapter 3. It's the same place where Moses had his initial conversation with God when God appeared to him in the form of a burning bush at the beginning of the book of Exodus in Exodus chapter 3. And so Moses is now, through his obedience to the command of God to go and proclaim this message to Pharaoh, Moses has now come full circle. He's back, as the popular song of the 70s says, he's back to where he started from. And the people join him there. So we don't know exactly what mountain it is. Lots of pilgrims still go to the traditional place known as Jebel Musa in the southern Sinai. Some scholars say it was more north. We're not really sure where it was or what it was. But this would be an important place in the life of Israel. Wherever it was, it would be the place that the nation of Israel stayed throughout the entire remaining book of Exodus. They would never leave where they're arriving at here in Exodus chapter 19, not at least until the book of Exodus is over. It'll be this location where Moses delivers to the people the Ten Commandments. It'll be this location where Moses over time delivers to the people the fuller law magnified from the Ten Commandments as the base of the law of God. It'll be where for the first time the Israelites hear God's instruction about the tabernacle and obey it by assembling it and putting it together and housing the Ark of the Covenant there and using that as a base for which the place of worship would begin. It would be here that Israel as a people would for the first time since their deliverance from slavery, it'll be here where they first meet with God. But before that meeting with the people would happen, God would first meet with Moses. And so here at the same place where God reveals himself to Moses, a shaky, uncertain, in his view, very much unqualified leader, that God appears once again to Moses, who has been an obedient, stalwart servant of the living God, 
And he has another very important word to him about who he is and who Moses is, who the people are, and what God expects from those who would be called his. Now, what God says to Moses here, God never really asked Moses a question, but I'm going to frame our lesson from the Scriptures this morning in terms of three very important questions that I think are obviously raised from the statements that God makes to Moses. The first question that is addressed in the study of this passage of Scripture is very simply, who is God? Because God, at least in part, answers that question in this revelation to Moses on the mountain. As we read it, it's a kind of a sermon from God to an audience of one, namely Moses. It's a one-way monologue. God's doing all the talking. Moses is simply there doing the listening. So this is a formal address of God to his most important leader on planet earth after seven, eight, nine weeks of desert traveling. They hadn't really been out in the wilderness very long. Three new moons, the Bible says, which is only a matter of a handful of weeks. And what God does here with Moses is basically address what we know as the covenant that he had made with Abraham. He readdresses this formal agreement that he himself had unilaterally, unconditionally made to this people that before his calling was not even a people at all. The Lord called to Moses out of the mountains saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and have brought you to myself. That is poetic, it's powerful, and it's poignant. Did you see the three things either implied or directly stated there that God did for his people? First of all, you should notice that God identifies himself as the people's deliverer. He's their deliverer. He's the God who brought them out. He's the God who delivered them from over 400 years, four centuries of Egyptian bondage from slavery. And as he did it, not only did he simply deliver them, he judged their captors in the process. He humiliated not only the Pharaoh, but the Pharaoh's magicians. He humiliated all the false gods through the plagues that he rendered on the people of Egypt. And he drowned the most powerful army in the world, swallowing them up in the Red Sea. He's their deliverer. And can I say this morning, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's what God is to you. First and foremost, to those who know Him by faith, God is a deliverer. For the Bible presupposes that every single one of us come into this world lost and in the captivity of sin, and it's a prison house from which we have no escape unless someone who holds the key shows up and opens the door. And that's what salvation is. Whether it be in biblical Hebrew or biblical Greek, the words for salvation and deliverance are one and the same in the Bible. To save is to deliver, and to deliver is to save. And it's like the song that we sing very often here at Hillcrest, are you not grateful that we have a God and our God saves? Amen. He's a saving, delivering God. 
In addition to that, though, God identifies himself here as their sustainer, their provider, if you like that word better. He's their strength, their sustainer, their provider, the God who by his own testimony bore them on eagles' wings. Isn't that beautiful? I bore you on eagles' wings. It's a poetic way of God saying, I'm the one's taking care of you. I promise to take care of you, and I'm going to take care of you. Just like a mother eagle tenderly takes care of those chicks of hers. For however how long it takes until they're self-sustaining on their own, I'm going to take care of you for as long as you're on a journey in this lost and broken world. Notice how Moses will render it in Deuteronomy 32, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided them, namely Israel. Did you know that young eagles remain in their mother's nest for over 100 days? Over three months. And the scripture is absolutely correct. I mean, when young eagles are learning how to fly, the mother is super attentive. Literally keeping an eagle's eye on them. Everywhere they flutter and everywhere they fly, they learn how to be sufficient. Oftentimes, when they get into trouble, you'll see a mama eagle sweeping down, literally to rescue them, to either catch them in her pinions or to allow them to fall safely on her back. You see this, by the way, this imagery in a lot of J.R.R. Tolkien's books, those of you that love The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings trilogy. Man, when those hobbits get in trouble, when they're stuck out on a rock and there's molten lava swirling all around, what happens at just the right time? Out of the eastern sky comes an eagle, small at first, but getting larger and larger and larger. And here come the eagles, pictures of the rescuing, delivering, sustaining, providing hand of God himself. And they pick those tired, weary boys up, take them to higher ground, to a place of safety. That's who God is. It's who he was then and it's who he still is. He's our deliverer. He's our sustainer, our strength, our provider. But then also, maybe most significantly, God was there father. You say, well, pastor, I didn't hear you read the word father there. No, it's not in there, but it's in there. Word's not in there, but the concept is in there. Verse four, I brought you to myself. Now, it'd be one thing if God just looked at Moses and said, hey, never forget, I brought you out. Now I'm going back to bed. But he doesn't say that. He says, I brought you out, but I brought you out for a purpose. And the purpose, namely, was to bring you out so that I could bring you to me. God, I love that. See, the exodus wasn't just about getting people out. It was about drawing people close. Amen. It was about people learning to know God, learning to live for God, learning to speak for God, learning to testify unto God, learning to live for God and to shine a light for God. God was about the business then and he's about the business now of 
bringing people to himself. This is kind of one of the lessons of the most popular parable that Jesus ever told, which of course is the parable of the prodigal son. The father of the prodigal son is of course a picture of God as our heavenly father. And everyone of us knows the story begins with a tale of distance. There's a gulf, there's a gap, there's a separateness between father and child. And yet, as the child approaches, the father gets up and he flees to the son. He runs to the son and he embraces the son. He kisses the son. He reestablishes the son to a position of prominence within the family by giving him a robe and by giving him a ring. And then he throws the mother of all parties for the son, killing the fatted calf and rejoicing because this son who was once lost has come near again. The father was able to bring him close again. And this is what fathers do. I mean, not every father is a great father. Some of us have been in trouble a time or two, and we had to make the most hated call in the world. We got into some trouble, and we had to call dad. And how dad responds to that time of trouble makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? If you have to call dad to come get you and you're on a street corner waiting for him, you tell him where to go and where to pick you up, and dad comes and he's squealing the tires and he's got a scowl on his face and he rolls the window down and he shouts out in a hostile voice, get in. That's going to communicate one thing. But if the dad rolls up, gets out of the car when he sees you standing on the street corner and runs to you and sweeps you up in his arms and embraces them. And he said, I don't care what you've done right now. There may be a time in a day or two where I'm going to thrash you, but I'm not thrashing today. Today I'm going to draw you close because I'm glad you're fine and I want you back. Put you in the car, drives you home. Communicates two different things, doesn't it? And this is the way God is, the second way. And God begins this conversation with Moses by revealing himself in a very particular way, telling him who he is, what he's done. He's our deliverer. He's our sustainer, our strength, our provider. He's our father. And the God of Israel is the same God to whom you and I relate today as followers of Jesus Christ. He's the one who's brought us out, but never forget, he's brought us out of the slavery of sin for a reason. He brings us out to bring us close. That's question number one, who is God? And that's who he is. Question number two, what does God require? What does God want from his people? That's articulated in the first part of verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed what? Obey my voice and keep my covenant. Obey and keep. It's a fact this is the first time the phrase keep my covenant is actually used in the book of Exodus. And the idea there is full obedience, complete obedience. 
As the Apostle Paul defines the gospel in the first chapter of Romans, he will indicate very clearly right out of the gate in the most important letter ever written that the gospel was given by God unto the obedience of faith. Obeying the commands of God, obeying the law of God, obeying the covenant of God cannot save anybody because in our brokenness due to sin, we're incapacitated. We cannot obey the law of God in the flesh. But once God brings us to himself, the expectation is that we will live in conformity to the holy law of God. We'll live in a way worthy of the calling to which we've been called, holy and blameless. This idea is trumpeted over and over and over again in the New Testament. And this is where God makes it clear for the very first time. I'm bringing you to myself, but I want you to be different from everybody else. Live by a different standard. Live by a different law. Live by a different code. Be holy just as your Father in heaven is holy. Now, this statement right here in verse 5 kind of sets up the giving of the Ten Commandments, which happens when you turn the page. This is what comes first. God's going to give them commandments, but before he gives them commandments, he gives them the requirement first, obey them. Live by them, know them, do them. And by the way, let me just say the order of events is important here. Be very careful to notice that as it pertains to the Exodus, God first brings the people out before he gives them the command to obey. That's critical. Because if it had been, if God had approached the nation of Israel in bondage the other way around, they would have never gotten out of bondage, now would they? I mean, think about it. If God had gone to them and said, okay, here's a list of do's and don'ts. And I'm going to be watching for the next hundred years. And as long as you do it well, as long as you keep these rules and perform, then I'll come back at the end of 100 years and I'll get you out. But you got to perform first. You got to earn it first. They never would have gotten out. Don't miss how and why the people got out of Egyptian bondage. I'm going to tell you what, the grace of God plus nothing else. That's it. God brought them out because he'd made a promise to their forefather whose name was Abraham. He brought them out to draw them close, to create a people who could impact a lost, dying, pagan world with the light of the gospel. But if he had reversed that, they would have had no hope. Man, it's still that way today. We live in a world's very religious world. But as has been said many times, there's a great continental divide in the religions of the world. And on one side, you got all of the other religions of the world that are all performance-based, aren't they? Here are the requirements, here are the rules, not go and do them, and pray to God that everything's okay between you and God, because you never really can be sure. And then on the other side of that continental divide, you've got biblical Christianity. This says, okay, this is not about my performance, it's about God's performance, amen. It's about what God has done. It's not about what I do in order to curry favor with God, to climb a ladder to God, to get God to embrace and accept me because of what I've done. No, I'm broken and lost in sin. I'm incapacitated. I don't even have a desire to please God in my fallen, unregenerate state. 
And so on this side of the continental divide, you've got biblical Christianity that says it's not about doing anything. It's all about what God has already done. It's a difference between do and done. Over there, everybody says do. Over here, God just says it's done. Christ did it. Jesus paid it all. Will you respond to what Christ has already done? Now, a lot of people hear me say that. And I, oh, I know what you think. You're one of those narrow-minded Baptists. Only thinks Baptists are going to heaven. Now, I'm a lot more narrow-minded than that. I don't even think all the Baptists are going to heaven. Because <laughs> there are a lot of legalistic people on this side that though they say one thing with their lips, they live the other way. And they feel like they never can measure up to God. Well, you can't. But yet God was making it clear, obedience is still very important to God. Grace sets us free. But God wants to be a peculiar people, wants us to be peculiar, different, in ways that reflect well on Him in this vast sea of lostness. You say, well, preacher, I fall short. I can't keep, I can't be fully obedient all the time. That's right. You can't, neither can I, and neither could they. You can't. The law was never given as a means of saying, you ought to be able to live up to this 100%, 100% of the time, because you can't. No, the law was given to show you, first of all, what God's righteous standard was, because it's there in one sense, if you could keep it all, then you'd probably be right with God, but that's the standard, keeping it 100%, 100% of the time, which nobody can do. And so when we're confronted with these moral demands of God, it just breaks us. It breaks us. And that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to break you. It's supposed to show you you're hopeless. You can't measure up. If this is the standard for righteousness in the presence of a holy God, I have no hope. That's right. That's what you're supposed to come to. But there is hope, not in the law but in the one who satisfied the law on your behalf, namely Christ in his death on the cross. No, you won't be able to keep it fully, but the beautiful thing about it is by God giving us the gift of the law, it helps us to appreciate all the more radically the drama of grace. And we realize apart from the cross, we have no hope. The difference is one of perspective. For Moses and his people, it kept them looking forward to a Savior that was to come. For us, we look back. They look forward, we look back. The difference is the same. We need a Savior because we're broken because of sin and we cannot measure up. Either way. Whether you look forward like they did or look backwards like we do, it's only through faith in a Savior that we become keepers of the covenant together with the people of Israel, partakers of the covenant, or to use Paul's language, we become grafted in. Who is God? What does God require? Thirdly, who are we? God's been very clear about telling the people of Israel who he was, now he reminds us who we are, specifically who they were in verses 4 and 5. You yourselves, you shall be. 
Here it is. My treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's who we are. Did you catch that? I'm not going to have time to unpack this, but I'm going to come back and revisit it next Sunday because I think it needs, because this is who we are. That's the title of next Sunday's message. This is who we are. And if you're reading this statement from Exodus 4 and 5, you think, oh, I've heard that before. Well, it's in the New Testament too. 1 Peter chapter 2. Now you know where 1 Peter got that or where Peter got that. He got it right out of God's statement in the book of Exodus, and it describes the people of God for all ages, for all time. Three identifying markers of who Israel was, both as the people of God and the purpose that they had by God in the world. They were a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests. They were God's holy nation. Now, you ought to know instinctively, and even more obviously if you know the Word of God, that we don't deserve any of those three things. In fact, we deserve to be judged by the holy God of heaven. What we deserve is judgment. We deserve alienation. And yet God comes to us in the face of our sin and says, I'm going to make you into my treasured possession. You're going to become a kingdom of priests, literally bridge builders. We have a useful function to God. God should have judged us, and now because of His grace, God's not only going to bring us out, He's going to draw us close, and for a useful purpose, to shine a light in a very dark world, where the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only hope of the world. And we have the message of it. And that's why he called Israel unto himself. And he, it's why he's called the people of God, notice the church, unto himself. As a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Distinct and unusual in terms of its outlook and attitudes. In terms of its behavior, the decisions that it makes. We're unique. And we have all of that. His privilege is because of nothing that we bring to the table, only because of the incredible grace of God. God saves us, and then He does an amazing thing. He declares our value. He saves us from our sin. He declares our value. He indicates that we have a function, and He identifies what that function is and how useful it will be in taking the gospel to all nations that people might be liberated themselves from the very bondage that keeps them from knowing God and functioning with purpose in their lives. Man, that shouldn't make anybody proud. When you hear that this is what God has done for you and this is whom God has declared you to be, it ought to drive you to your knees in humility. Don't <laughs> you say, God, I just don't know why. I don't know why you're doing this to me. I don't know why you're doing this for me. The greatest privilege in the world is the privilege of being called a child of God. And then to be called alongside of God. To co-labor with Christ. 
and pushing back the darkness and communicating to a lost and dying world their only hope, which is to know the Savior who alone can set them free. We'll talk more about that and what it means when we're together next time, but for today, this is one of the great passages of the Old Testament. It's God's word to God's people from the holy mountain called Sinai. And never forget it. As we live in a world filled with brokenness and uncertainty, the only hope for the world is that the world come to know God for who He is and for what He alone can do. The only hope for the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, my brothers and sisters, is God's Word to God's people. And let all who agree say, Amen.